And welcome back to another episode of the Good Buddy Sports Bar. You got Skinny B and AP. What's going on? Not much, man. Excited to kind of talk about the Ryder Cup and what kind of shit show it was. So, yeah, let's get after it. Oh, I figured we had nothing to talk about this week, so we could just get right into the Sanderson Farms Shriners Open. Do you want to do that? Like, yeah, there nothing, nothing big happened over the last little bit, so... <laughs> Yeah, we've only been setting up the Ryder Cup for two months since we've started this podcast. So we should probably break it down now that it's over and in the books. Um, We should probably do a good job of it, too. Yeah, I think the rest of our podcast hinge on our performance today. Yep. So going into it, I think there's a lot of unanswered questions from both teams. Who would step up? Where was the leadership going to come from on the European side? And how were some of the rookies going to play on both sides of the fence? Um, Europe ends up pulling it out 16 and a half to 11 and a half. When you summarize this Ryder Cup, I think you look at some of the decisions that were made from a captaincy standpoint, whether it be before the tournament or during the tournament. I think you had two totally different captains, one that, Anybody who was watching it was watching any of the press conferences, any of the interviews would follow into battle. And another guy who looked like he was lost, wandering around and didn't know what the hell to say. Um, What were your overall thoughts on the captains? We'll start there. Yeah, I think Luke Donald looked like he'd been there before. He was confident. There was really no questioning what he was doing or who he was putting out. And I feel like Zach Johnson was trying to reinvent the wheel. Mm-hmm. I think he was overthinking things. I think he he's like a you know blue-collar grinder, and I think he put too much weight on that with his team in the pairings versus just letting the big guns do what they get paid to do. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point. And I was thinking about this last night. Um, You look at Zach and not an overly flashy guy at any point throughout his career. I don't think that there was a big draw to him as far as like he's not charismatic. People don't take to him too well. I don't think he has a big backing as far as the fan base is concerned. And he kind of fell into this captaincy because they were running low on guys to be putting in that spot. Um Another thing that I looked at, too, is the team that they put together. It seems to be the same guys every year for the American vice captains. And someone posted this online, and it shocked me when I saw it. But you look at the three guys they had, all of them have losing records in the Ryder Cup. I know that's not the be-all and end-all. You look at Tiger, one of the greatest players of our generation, and he's also got a losing record. Um, But I look at that, and it's like, maybe it's time to refresh some of the vice captains as well as look into some guys who just have winning records at the Ryder cup can tell some of those war stories about what they were able to do, what they were able to come out with and accomplish tough to get an American who's won on European soil, but still get somebody with a winning record, get a winning culture going. Yeah. I think one, I completely agree. I think it, I think it's time for a change. I mean, they got their, butts kicked 
I think like as soon as I saw the first session pairings and there were between JT, um, Jordan and Brooks Kepka, what is that? Like 11 majors just sitting on the bench. Like, I think you, you immediately set the wrong, the tone can't get set when you're, you know, top guns aren't even playing in the first session. And you touched on this. You said he tried to reinvent the wheel. They have something that's worked in the past, the true pod system, where you take right. more than likely an alpha male, you stick them in each one of the pods, then you tear down some of the other guys that they can play with, and then you send them out there. He decided to go with the friend route and choose guys based upon their friendships, their alliances, their allegiances. And it, some of them also didn't make sense to me. Um, when I look at Sam Burns and Scotty, totally makes sense. When I look at JT and Jordan, makes sense. One of the ones that didn't make sense to me during that first foursome match was the um, Ricky Fowler, Colin Morikawa pairing. I did not understand that one. Yeah. There may be a California connection there, but you got two guys, one who's deeper into his career, one guy who's just starting. I thought that one was going to be Homa and Fowler. I look at that one and say that could have been a swapped result because Fowler and Morikawa handed it to Straka and Lowry during that first session. If you change nothing else, I think they at least come out of that session 3-1, and that was a head-scratcher for me, that pairing alone so it's just some of these decisions were just downright strange yeah i don't know it was i'm gonna use a a term our dear friend adam uses i feel like zach johnson outsmarted himself with the pairings he overthank he overthought them um he was trying to get too creative and yeah, I think it, it it set a terrible tone from the very beginning that they really couldn't come back from. The only time they got any, you know, sniff of momentum was when the guys were playing solo on on Sunday. Yeah, well put. I also told myself I wasn't going to be completely negative on Zach Johnson coming into this, and all that I've done is belittled him since the start of this podcast. So. I'm going to step off that and say as much as you want to look at some of the strange things that he did. And in that first session in particular, there were some strange things. I think you're also taking the best players in the world. You're matching them up. You're putting them out onto the golf course. And if a guy can't hit a golf shot, there's nothing that a captain can do. So 90% of the blame's got to be put onto the players who are actually hitting those shots. Um, Another thing I wanted to say, but I think at the same time, I mean, golf is such a golf, such a mental game. Like if you put the guy out there in a position that he's not necessarily comfortable in, you're putting him in, in a detrimental spot for him to play his game. Which is fair. Similar to which is the coach's or the captain's responsibility. Yeah. Putting your players in the best position possible. Yeah. I get that. Um, It was just like, Guys weren't able to hit the shots. You look at JT and Speed, their first round out there. B 
Spieth was just all over the track with the two-way miss, and then they put them out there on Saturday morning, and he was doing it to JT, and JT wasn't really doing him any favors back. But I look at that pairing, and as much as you didn't like the pick of JT, I looked at those two as being the heartbeat for the Americans. There was very little emotion shown in those first matches, and I think part of it was nerves going out there. Part of it was not wanting to disrupt the crowd and get them fired up right out of the gate. Um, but nobody showed any real life until that second or third session. And it was just way too late into the the event to be coming awake. Yeah, I think you, you can't go into somebody else's barn and play scared of the crowd. Yeah, And that's exactly what they did. They like avoided... It, it wasn't until the the Cantlay hat waving and and that kind of thing came that they they got excited and you know Homa started being Homa and, and you know Cantlay was getting fired up and the caddies and all of that I think that that was the point where the energy actually you know came to the U.S. team it was just too late mm-hmm. yeah so coming out of that. Friday morning session, the U.S. down 4-0, just couldn't come out of the gate. I was trying to track stats for those first matches, and here's another negative when it came to the Ryder Cup. The coverage was absolute shit. Um, Way too many Dog shit. Yeah, way too many breakaways. I I couldn't even track it, so I just kind of gave up. But for what I was tracking... It was a matter of the Europeans hitting fairways or not putting themselves into troubling spots and the Americans putting themselves into trouble and having to save par as opposed to having a tap in for par. So they had these eight to 10 footers, which are typically a 50-50 for most pros. Um, And it was swinging to the 50% miss side more than not for the Americans in that morning session. An interesting thing, even on the first hole, like... The first hole of the first four matches, whoever, U.S. or Europe, if you missed the fairway on the first hole, you could not get it on the green in two. Yep. Period. Yep. Yep. We were saying that as we were watching. And we knew that's the way that course was going to be, but it was just so interesting. It was the first hole. It was on display within the first three matches, like how penal not hitting the fairway was going to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You got to see what the course is going to play like for sure. It also doesn't help that the Europeans go out there. Hovland is just on fire around the greens. And I'm looking at the shots gained stats right now. Aberg was a plus 1.6 putting in that first match. Um, Right. And you look at all the Americans and everybody's negative outside of Xander Shoffley. For total shots. Well, let the, hold on. Let's touch on that Hovland uh, Ober pairing. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I thought it was going to be Hovland or Rory and the young gun, or you know, one of the older guys with him to kind of keep him comfortable. Yep. But I think it was a stroke of genius to put him with Hovland because Hovland's the hottest golfer on earth. So hot right now. So hot right now, Victor. So hot right now. 
Yeah, you take. The you know guy what I mean? Like hit any shot, he hits all of his approaches tight or to like 10, 15 feet. And Aberg was just knocking down putts left, right, and center. So he did everything that he yeah. needed to do out there. Um, and I think it showed us a little bit more of Oberg's game um, and what he has to offer. Like I didn't realize that he had that sort of putter on him when you put him into those situations and he's got some of those makeable putts, he was making everything. Yeah. The putter was hot. Yeah. Yeah. So like I look at it, uh, a bulk of it had to do with just not being able to put it in the fairway in those first matches. Um, Let's chat about the Friday four ball matches Um, a little bit more even when it came to those matches, the Americans were actually up in three of them coming down the stretch after Fitzpatrick and McElroy closed out Morikawa and Shoffley five and three. Um, and in what was it? 20 minutes. They went from having possibly three points on the board to having halves in all three of those matches. It's the, the beauty of match play, man. I think it, anything can happen, and the littlest mistake can cause a big swing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you had Rom hitting that eagle putt from off the green. Um, and then to close it out, I think similar to what happened in the Solheim Cup where um, Lexi Thompson's team, they ended up um, losing the 18th hole on the Friday during their session, I think a very similar thing happened in the Ryder Cup where the Ryder Cup was lost on that Friday. Not being able to get at least two or three points out of that last three groups. Yeah, I mean, you can't be stuck, even after the first, like, session, you can't be stuck four points, like, right off the top. Yeah. You know, like, you're immediately in recovery mode for the rest of the weekend. Yeah. Yeah. You're playing off the back foot for the rest of the weekend. Yeah. 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 When I look at it overall, like the Americans were just getting beat straight up as far as strokes game were concerned. Their putting wasn't there. Everything just pointed to, I think a little bit of rustiness. I don't want to blame the five weeks off or four weeks off. Like these guys are still practicing. They're still playing. (sighs) I don't know how you feel about it. I heard the sigh, so I'll stand aside. I think that was a gigantic mistake. I think the fact you're going into this tournament that supposedly means so much to everybody and you're not playing competitive golf for five weeks beforehand, where and then you're, you're, the team you're competing against is playing all of them like the week before, and all making the cut I, and all having good finishes. Yeah. I, it's like saying like you want to go into the play. Like we, we talk about it in other sports where, you know, a team, they, they sweep the first round of their playoffs and they have to wait, you know, a longer wait time than the team they're about to play. Cause that team, let's say went to six games and you can see the time off the rust forms immediately. I think the U.S. team not doing that, whether for whatever reason, maybe they needed a break or they just weren't taking it that seriously or what. I think I think Zach Johnson should have had his guys in tournaments, whether it was on the DP World 
tour or the Asian tour or PGA, whatever it was, they should have been playing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I get where you're going with it. And like I said, I don't want to blame it on the rust because I think there was more at play um, than just that. I think they just didn't play well, period. I don't know if that was a rust or just the situation, things that led up to it. Um, we're hearing other stuff was going on. Guys were looking at pay to play. I, lo- I love how they tried to say that there was like a bug that went through the team room and that like they were like within the first day, they were like immediately trying to come up with excuses. And it's like, no, you just put out terrible pairings and the pairings played like shit. Yeah. It is what it is. Yeah. And sometimes you just got to own that and then say, we're going to come back better tomorrow. We'll learn some stuff from what we tried today and we're going to try something new tomorrow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I I also did find it interesting. Go ahead. No, you finish. I, I also found it interesting, like on the last day, like the demeanor of Zach Johnson was almost like a manager who realizes his team is going to miss plan and begins to micromanage them and look at everything they're doing. Well, it started even though Saturday they haven't been put in a position to succeed. Yeah, it was Saturday yeah. afternoon when he walks like, up to Jordan Spieth and tells him to hit three wood instead of right. Sorry, yeah, that covered. was Saturday. But I know what you're right, saying. and like, you know what I mean? Like, you put him out there, let him play it. He's he's Jordan Spieth. Like, you need to put your team in a position to succeed. You don't need to micromanage them. And he, you could tell he was starting to, he was fighting the urge to do that more than he actually did. And he almost seems like that sort of person that would be wanting guys to play the course a certain way. And as much as he was saying beforehand, well, we'll use the stats, but like guys will play the course however they want to play it. This may have been a situation where before the tournament, you just said we're hitting three woods almost everywhere that we can in order to get into the fairway. And that's all there is to it. The drivable par fours, pull driver, go for the greens. I'm fine with that. But everywhere else, we should be hitting three woods just to get onto the fairway. Fairways and greens win match play. You put your opponents in a situation where if you hit first because you're hitting three wood, but you're in the fairway from 180 to 190 as opposed to 150 or 170 in the rough on that course, you're putting pressure on the other guys. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, still ended up being an interesting Sunday. There were a couple of matches that could have flipped uh, the tide a little bit early on, but um, Rom was able to fight off Scotty, keep that thing a tie. Um, and early on, the Europeans were just doing what they needed to do to win the thing. Um, I think you had a take when we were chatting shortly after about the Ricky Fleetwood match and giving Fleetwood that putt to secure the half point. Yeah. You should never give anyone a putt to secure it, especially when that's like going to win it. You know, I've, I've been hating on Fleetwood's putter for as long as we've been doing this, even though I love Tommy Fleetwood, but like 
he's still got like a five, six footer or whatever it was. Like you got to make him putt it. If the match is on the line, the entire tournament is on the line. He's got a bit of a shaky putter. You got to make him putt it. Yeah. And he misses that. You make yours. You go the next hole. You have a chance now to win that match yeah. as opposed to just getting right. a tie out of it, which would have flipped things um, in the Americans' direction. And worst like, case scenario, even, if it, even if it's Rom or one of the guys with a with a putter that's on fire, you still need to make them putt it. Like you can't concede anything at all, especially mm-hmm. on the last day when you and your entire team have an uphill grind ahead of you. Yeah, you need every point you can get, and you got to fight tooth and nail to get there. Yeah. I'm not going to disagree with that. The other thing that I'm going to say is he had an eight-footer. I think Fleetwood had a four-footer at that point. I get it to a certain extent. I don't necessarily love it, but I didn't hate it at the same time. Um, But I would agree. You still got to fight it out in order to... If it was like mid-round and, you know... that was the situation and it wasn't for your match or for the whole tournament. Yeah. Okay. Maybe don't make them put the four footer, but it was a different scenario where the whole thing was on the line. Like it's a three, three inch gimme. You need to make them put it. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. We saw enough of those miss both weekends, Solheim cup and Ryder cup. Yeah. Yeah, keep going, keep fighting. Um, we talked about it earlier, the dog shit um, television broadcast. Oh, like, it, it was so bad. A couple of things that I thought about over the last few days and looking at some of the viewership numbers, they were down 50% over the Paris um, viewing numbers. And it was a very similar situation as far as score was concerned. Europeans in Paris were up quite substantially going into the Sunday. Same thing with this one. Um, A couple of things that I thought about, and it kind of ties into what I was saying about Zach Johnson earlier. Um, One part is from an American perspective, you downgraded your team. So you had three guys who were at Whistling Straits who are draws. They're polarizing figures, two out of the three of them. So you got DJ. Bryson and Pat Reed. So from that perspective, the American team was already behind the eight ball. So you downgraded those three guys for some of the guys that ended up making the team. You add on top of that, you got a guy like Zach Johnson, who was never a draw, even when he was a player. And I don't think that the spectators were there. I don't think that the eyeballs were going to be there. And it was just a, it was upsetting to see how they presented the, Ryder Cup because I don't think that people who are watching and passing were going to watch it based upon how they presented it. Like you didn't know what was happening on any of those matches at any given time because they just didn't present it well. Yeah, I mean, the, any of those sessions, there's what? Eight balls in play? Maximum. Like you're telling me we can't see every single shot? Like you watch the Sanderson Farms coming up. Well, I'll watch that this weekend. I bet you they're going to have the commercials going, but they'll have the playing through. Like the, the amount of, and obviously this is the Canadian broadcast, 
for the Canadian commercials, but the amount of WWE raw commercials and, uh, NHL, NHL hockey commercials and the same ones over and over, like every five minutes we're going to commercial break. It, it was tough to watch. And if it, and had I not like been invested in it, I wouldn't have kept watching it. I mean, as soon as I discovered that I could watch that, what was it? The Lowry Straka, um, Feature match the first day on YouTube. I just switched directly to YouTube. Yeah, and then you got to see Derek Jeter's travels from Washington back to Florida. It was great. Oh yes, his Wagoneer commercial. Yep, yep, yeah. It was tough to watch, and I don't think they did themselves any favors in winning new fans to the sport over the weekend um, with the coverage that they had. I know it's on at one thirty on the East Coast, ten thirty on the West Coast. You're not going to get a whole lot of people up for that, but if anybody taped it, I think you would have been disappointed by what you saw. It would be interesting to see how much time, if you did tape it, like how much time of the five hours of recording you have, you actually watched golf. I was taking a ballpark, and I think it was a pretty clean 50-50 split. Right. Every time that they would come back to coverage, you get like maybe five minutes of coverage. Then it would be jump off to a commercial. They come back from the commercial. They'd have some sort of interview. Then they do the, uh, the sportsmanship award and then they do something else. And then it's back to the coverage for two and a half minutes back to commercial. It was just, it was terrible. Yeah. I mean, if it's that big of a tournament, like couldn't you get like a title sponsor, like Rolex to cover, the overall cost and like just do playing through like they do for all these other smaller tournaments. Yeah. I was thinking the same thing. Um, and you got to wonder if it's because they aren't getting the eyeballs. So they have to get more sponsors because people aren't willing to be the title sponsor, but it was just, it was bad. It It was was hard to watch, especially when it's like three in the morning and you're up watching it and you want to watch it. And then you're just getting inundated with commercials. I wonder too if there's a bit of golf fatigue going on right now. Like you got maybe in essence a fifty-two week schedule. You got the division between Live and the PGA. Um lack of star power, like I brought up earlier. Um I I just question whether or not people are like I'm done. Like I've had enough. I think I think that's a great point. And I think the lack of star power is a major one there. Like I'm not going to see like Bryson should have been on that team. Yeah. And like people will tune in to watch Bryson because he just hits bombs all the time. And oh by the way, he can ball. shoot a 58 or 59. You know what I mean? Like he should have been on that team. He would have brought in better engagement. He would have brought in some other eyes. People would have been interested to see what he was going to do. I mean, how big was it? How many times have you seen the clip where he drove the green on number one at Whistling Straits? Everybody. Everybody who covers golf yeah. on Instagram had that clip on. Yeah, exactly. So I think that I think the U.S. needs to go back to the drawing board for – it's Beth Page next, I believe, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, then you go back to the drawing board 
who's going to be available for the team, who's going to lead that team as the captain. It needs to be someone engaging to the fans. Yeah, I could really see a Tiger taking that role. Um, They need somebody with star power. They need somebody with charisma. They need somebody to lead that team. So you bring up a good point. You also bring up Beth Page Black. And I don't think it's too early to start talking about that course in a similar way to what we were talking about with Marco Simone. It's a very similar track when you look at it. It's not wide open. It's not a bomber's paradise. Yeah, you might be able to overpower it a little bit because you can get a little bit deeper down the fairway. The rough, maybe they don't grow it up as much as they do for a U.S. Open, but I couldn't see them being able to widen the fairways much more than they already do. Um, I think outside of the fans, the course is going to be very similar. And if both teams play the way that they did this week or this past weekend, I think the U.S. could be in for a road loss or a home loss. Yeah. Yeah, it just depends what team they put together. I mean, are they going to take the hottest, best golfers in the world, or are they going to continue to have the boys club? I mean, the way I would would summarize the U.S. team at this Ryder Cup is the video of Zach Johnson hitting the ball during his practice swing. (laughs) That's a perfect... Perfect visual representation of how it went. Doink. Like, Uh. it was underwhelming, not exactly exciting. The European team almost hit, almost blew them out, like I called. Like it, yeah. We almost hit our, uh, so I met us in the middle. So you had 17-11, I had 15-13. We had a pretty good weekend overall betting, too. Um, We took the Euros. We took them in almost every session. Ended up uh, doubling up our money. And if they would have hit that... So I took 16-12 as the exact score. We were half a point off. And that would have been a good win. It would have been an extra 75 bucks for us. but We're big spenders. Well, $5 unit. I don't want to break the bank or anything. Yeah, here. no, exactly. We haven't figured out how to monetize this podcast yet. Well, if we did, I would have been at <laughs> least a thousand dollar unit. So, but yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I love. We talked about it before. Like, I love that European team. I like what, how they put it together. There was a couple guys that I kind of questioned. You know, Lowry, but Lowry ended up kind of being the emotional leader. Him and Rosie on that team. Um, but I did appreciate kind of how the pairings were put together. I and mean, we talked about this before, but I found it interesting that three of the four pairings in the first session play the same brand of golf ball. Now, maybe one plays a Pro V1X and one plays a Pro V, but it, it seemed to me that the pairings and, and the factors that went into those pairings were down to the golf ball too. Yeah. Like, I don't think it's a con- uh, coincidence that Lowry and Strzok are paired together and they both play Strixon golf balls. Yeah. And pairing, he, they did a good job of pairing some of the vets with some of the rookies and helping them yeah. get through that first session. It does help that a lot of the rookies ended up balling out um, on their own. But yeah. Um, yeah, when you brought that up while we were watching the first session, 
it just showed that extra layer of thought that Donald and his team put into making those pairings. I also look at the differences in teams right now. You got one team who took a chance, the Euros, with some of the youth bringing them on to this Ryder Cup yep. um, in order to advance them to get ready for the next one on the road. I think that was a smart, smart move. Um, here's another stat. Um, I saw a thing that Curtis sent me on Instagram and it was, who would you make put a four footer? And they had them ranked between three categories. And Rosie was in that middle category or no, he was in the must make them putt category, which was like the worst. He ends up being Mm -hmm. a plus 4.95 strokes game putting through the week. And that putt that he had on 18 in that final match just put an exclamation point on the routing that they had on day one. He was huge. Yeah, he was uh, he was solid, and and I didn't really have any doubt in Rosie being on the team. If they were going to pick one old guy, quote unquote, he would have been mine. Um, and I think he embraced his role, and he went out there and, and did his job beyond anyone's expectations. Yeah. Yeah. It. I know you love your Rosie, and I think he came through super clutch. Yeah. Yeah. He's also like the king of grinding out pars. So when you're playing a course like that in those situations and in those different types of match play, having a guy that can grind out pars and doesn't really get too flustered is a massive asset. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, again, that's what it's all about. Fairways, greens, and then grinding out pars or grinding out tough holes. And they have how good was John guys. John Rom the whole time? Man, every time that because he was playing Scotty quite a bit, every time that they were trying to make a run, he would just fend them off. Whether it was a chip in, a just hit 16, something ridiculous. Yeah, sixteen he chips in for eagle. Um, I think it was in that match against Brooks and Scotty where. Um, Brooks and Scotty ended up birdieing four of the last five holes, I believe it was, or five, the last five holes. And Rom equals two of the last five holes to, to right. take it. So just what can Well, even do? like, even the third hole of his first session, he hits an absolute bomb putt. Mm-hmm. And it was, as soon as I saw that, I was like, yeah, he's on. He's on for the whole weekend. Like, just dialed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then we also had the Nordics going out there and putting a beat down on Scotty and Brooks in that morning session. It almost mm-hmm. feel like, felt like a forced pairing. Like, we got to put Tiger and Phil together to try and get some juice here and try and get something going, and it just did not fit. Yeah, I mean, the feeling, like, the general feeling I got between the two teams, it was like, the Euro team, they were on board with whatever pairing they got put into. Like, they trusted the pairings. Mm -hmm. It felt like the US team, they had pre-decided what pairings they wanted to play in because of their little cliques clicks and 
then anytime there was a pairing that didn't fit within that kind of narrative, it just felt like it didn't go well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, like Kepka Scheffler. I would never put those two together. Don't ask me why. I just, my gut tells me that's not the pairing to put together. Yeah, you got two guys on the total opposite end of the spectrum. One guy talks his mind, speaks his mind all the time, doesn't really give a shit what's happening, what's going on, what anybody else is saying about him. Then you got Scheffler, who's, uh, I would call him a square, and like doesn't party, doesn't do anything, doesn't speak his mind, says what you're supposed to say, and you're trying to stick those two together. Maybe it's not going to work. So Yeah. No, exactly. Like they probably don't even want to hang out with each other for four or five hours, you know? Yeah. One of the winners, I think, coming out of this Ryder Cup, I will say. I've never really been a fan of him. I think the slow play is part of it. I don't love the feel I get when I watch him. Patrick Cantlay. But arguably the best player for the Americans out there on a roster that underperformed. I think he comes out of this looking like a very strong contender in the majors next year. I think he put together a great Ryder Cup um, considering what they had to deal with. Um, I completely agree. He had a great show. Yeah, I mean, I'm the biggest hater of Cantlay, mostly because of the slow play. And I found myself like wanting to watch his matches. Yeah. He came, he came to play. He played well for whatever reason. He didn't wear a hat. Who gives a shit? Um, I thought it was funny. I mean, ultimately I saw the the memes afterwards because he got married like the next day or whatever. And it was because he didn't want to have the hat tan line. Um, so I'm going to give him that. But yeah, I mean, he played awesome. It was, I think you put him, you put him out there with Shoffle. Their their record speaks for itself in the last one. I think that pairing was the only one. That one and then the Burns Scheffler were like the two that I was like, yeah, I get it. Yeah. Um, well, JT and Smith. and I think all four of them should have been on the team regardless of how we want to slice it up. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I I completely agree with you. I think Cantlay came out. He weathered the storm. He dealt with all of the negative publicity and all that and played really good golf. And that's really what you need if you're going to win majors is to deal with that pressure. Yep. Yep. Anything else that you saw from the Ryder Cup? Oh, let's see. What else did I have in my notes here? Um, Are those – were the U.S. – are those the worst pairings overall – for U.S. team in history as a whole, I know there's singular ones that are probably worse, like Tiger and Phil. But like as a whole, is that the worst you've seen? Again, I go back to it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Again, Fowler Morikawa. I think the results speak for themselves. They were four over through five holes. Um, Shit, you and I can go Friday. four over through five. I know. Um, when Clark, Homa, Morikawa, Shoffley, like, I don't know. <sighs> then the decision for the Scheffler Kepka, that's a bad one. Um, yeah, I just, it, I, I would tend to agree. Like, they just, 
they didn't put the guys together. I think we've talked about it enough already, but it was just like they already had a preconceived notion going into it. And then they tried some stuff that really didn't work on Saturday as opposed to trying it out on like Friday afternoon or something. Um, and it backfired on them big time. So I would tend to agree. Yeah, there was a lot of head scratchers in there. Yeah, like imagine you got Cam Young there and Bryson. You're going to have so many more pairings you can put together that seems so much more exciting yeah. and more like more cohesive. Yeah. I think, you know, we said it when the, and I think every talking head in the golf space said it when the, when the teams were picked, like this is picked based on the boys club and who's friends with who. I don't even think and, Cam you know, Young. I think, I'll take it a step further. I think it was Keegan. Like that guy would play yeah, Keegan for the too. US and you're missing somebody who could have been the heartbeat that they needed there. You throw him out in the morning. Yeah, and, he, and I, I feel like a Keegan is one of those. Right. I, I feel like that, Keegan's one of those guys that you can that you can put with almost any of the guys on the U.S. team, and they're going to play well together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's pretty level-headed. Um, he can show some emotion during this sort of stuff, but at the right moments, he's there for the rest of the team the whole time. I think that was a big miss. Um, even when you're, looking he's at the Rosie of the U.S. team. Yeah, it shouldn't have been. He would Sam have been Burns. the Justin Rose. Yeah, Sam Burns should have never made that team. He had no right making that team. I mean, he is the defending Dell match play champ and all that. I get it, but like that's great. If he you put Keegan on that chunk, team, chunk the first two times that he had approach shots. Yeah. Well, his lettuce, his crunch was terrible. But oh, fuck, so bad, so bad. But yeah, I, 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 I completely agree with your your Keegan take. I think Keegan, if you had put Keegan on that team, he would have played the exact same role that Justin Rose played for the European team, yep. and he would have performed above expectations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anything else? Like I, I, looking back on it, I would have. Here's my take. No Ricky, no JT, no Sam Burns. And instead of those three, you have Keegan, Cam Young, and Bryson. Yeah, it would have been an upgrade over those. That, sure. that turns into a team that's interesting to watch. Yeah, the Ricky Make JT one. a assistant captain or something. You know what I mean? Like, get him there, get his attitude, and you know that within the team room. But you need okay, the guys that are going to perform. Let me say this: if you're going to replace either JT or Spieth, I don't think it was JT. I don't think he was the one that was letting that team down. I don't think that he was the one that you keep off the team. I think it was Spieth. I know there's stuff going on outside. He had his first kid, didn't have a great year overall. Like, it's all good. I can I can understand it. I'm not blaming him for his play for, like, that stuff. It's more so he was just downright bad. And when you have a two-way yeah. miss, why are you bringing a guy along that's in that situation? Like, you, you knew the timing of what was happening in his life. 
So maybe bring somebody else that is in a better position. That's why Victor is the study is (laughs) no white, no kids. Because him and um, Maria were dates. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you said this to me like a couple weeks ago. You're like, do you think that has anything to do with it? I'm like, 100% has something to do with it. I think I pointed out um, the fact that Scotty got married, JT got married, and um, Spieth got married and was about to have a kid. And those were my three. And I'm like, that's why Victor's dominating right now. Yep. Uh, 100%. One of the other things that was interesting, and it goes back to a conversation we had about a month ago, I think we were talking about players growing their brands, growing the game through their personal brands mm-hmm. and the difference between the PGA tour and live where live allows the guys to have cameras, follow them. They're able to make their own YouTube content, Instagram content within the ropes. Um, this is just more so hearsay and um, heard some rumblings about Cantley and Shoffley not wanting the cameras to be following them from the Netflix side. Um, they hadn't signed on to be on the Netflix full swing show, so they didn't want them in the team room. Um, and to a certain extent, I think this is a very team-oriented personal thing that they want to go through, and I can understand why they didn't want it. But it's another reason why the PGA Tour is going in the wrong direction. I get that they're trying to make more money for the tour so that they can increase purses. They can put more eyeballs onto the game. You get a bit of behind the scenes, but it's yet another example of them doing something so centralized and not allowing the players to grow the game and grow their own brands. And the players are starting to push back on all of this stuff because from the sounds of it, they aren't getting a very good deal on the Netflix money either. So, well, yeah, I mean, they're, they're controlling the entire narrative, Mm -hmm. you know, like, Whereas with live, all the players can control their own narrative and then their game speaks for however speaks, however it speaks if they win or not. But in, in the day that we're in now where everyone has social media content and everyone's monetizing it and everyone's trying to get their reach out there to say that someone can't do it and they can only be part of this one thing that you're doing while also not getting paid what they could be making for it. it it's kind of like the NCAA, like the NIL. Mm-hmm. Right, like you're just going to bank all this money, and players can't make money off their own name, image, and likeness. Yeah, yeah, it's all controlled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just another one of those examples of the PGA Tour. I think they have the best intention for the PGA, and it's similar to when you look at the NFL versus the NBA. The NFL has always been very centralized, or controlling the image. We're going to do everything, hard knocks, whatever else. The teams aren't going to have a say, and you're going to run how we tell you to, whereas in the NBA, it's a very player-driven league. They've used and leveraged all of their stars over the last 10, 15 years. The players have used that as leverage against the NBA and against the teams, which I think is a good thing to happen because then they're getting their just due on the back end. Um, But it just shows yet another example of like how 
the world has changed and the PGA not keeping up with how the world has changed. Well, yeah, like look how big the NBA has gotten globally compared to the NFL. Like the NFL tries, they have the games in England and, you know, that kind of stuff. But the NBA, like, is massive globally because of the reach of the players and what they allow them to do. Mm -hmm. And I think that is what the PGA Tour is missing. I mean, I couldn't, like the PGA or DP World Tour, European Tour, whatever the heck it's called at this point, like, it's not really engaging everybody. It's just kind of beating to the drum they've always beat to. Mm-hmm. And I was also thinking about it too, like from an overarching scheduling mentality, I get that you have all these players that are trying to make the top tour. So you have to have ways for these guys to make money, make points, get on to some of the major stages with the signature events and the majors. Going back to my point earlier, is some of this fatigue happening where fans just aren't looking to engage for 52 weeks in golf? And outside of that major season where you have all the majors within a four or five month window, I think people are just tuning out at this point and they're like, all right, enough. I don't need 52 weeks of golf. Yeah. So that's that's another thing that I think they got to look at changing. How do we make it so that people are engaged for that time and then the rest of the time, like, they got to be okay with people kind of checking out a little bit. Yeah, I'm with you. One last thing. We'll talk about the Sanderson Farms a little bit. Um, your boy's in it. Old the gala. Are you going to yep. take him again this week to that's my guy. back Jack's? Uh, I don't think he's going to get back-to-back jacks this week, um, but I'm pretty stoked that he won the first one. Yeah. I'm going to go with Mackenzie Hughes. He's on the list. I'll take a okay. Canadian to win this week. Um, You're not headline... taking Lexi Thompson to win? <laughs> Good segue there. I was going to bring that up. Um, cool that they got her have, have her coming in, um, Shriners Hospital. Um, Sanderson Farms. So Shriners Hospital ended up giving her the exemption there. I'm fine with it from a being able to elevate the women's game. I just don't think that this is the way to do it. And my thought today, once I saw that, was why don't the LPGA and the PGA Tour take a signature event? do a joint event at the same golf course. I haven't figured out whether they play the same tees or play women's and men's tees. doesn't matter, but have 70 from each. So your top 70 go into the tournament, have a weekend cut at 35 because you got to cut down the field. If you're going to have 140 players, which is fine. Those that are between 36 and 70 still get paid their signature event, um, payouts so nothing changes from purse perspective elevate the women's purse have alternating male female groups going out throughout the weekend that way you have both competitions going on at the same time they get close to equal airtime and you have the men's game with all the stars intact at that tournament elevating the women's game at the same time that's how i think you do it I don't think that these one-offs into the PGA Tour is the right way to go about it. 
No, I like that idea. When when you first started talking, I was like, you mean they're going to compete against each other? Not necessarily. No, but I get that you're not. You're just saying there's two tournaments running concurrently on the same course. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a great way to start it for sure. I think that that's a great idea. Yeah. I just look at it and I go, as much as you want to have a female face and to elevate the, the P, uh, LPGA. And I also think this is a way to add, um, I guess, uh, what's the word that I'm looking for to show females that they can get to the top of their sports and like, um, something to strive for. That's great. I get it. Why not do it jointly? And you bring out the star power from the men's game to be able to elevate the women's game, I think is a good way to do it because you already got the average viewer tuning in to see what's Rory going to do. What's John Rom going to do. And now you layer on the LPGA game on top of that. Yeah. And then in the future you have, you hold the Selheim cup at the exact same time on the same course that you hold the Ryder cup or the weekend before. I, I see no yeah. reason why you don't, and this is where I think the LPGA or whoever um, runs it from the women's game. I think they screwed up by alternating years. Yeah. Like I go from watching the Solheim Cup into the Ryder Cup because I'm jonesing for some match play. And that was a great primer. I, albeit it was a very close match, 14 14. Um, so it kept me engaged, but. It was a great way to start off Ryder Cup week. Yeah, I like that. I think there's definitely ways that they can do it. I I think your idea about having the concurrent events on the same course is awesome. Yeah, Yeah, it's just something to think about. Um, Also, Chris Kirk is in the field this weekend playing right-handed. Go check out, I think it's on his Instagram. He's been the last month or two playing left-handed trying to break 80 left-handed his uh low lefty is 82 right now all right i'll go check it out (laughs) i heard something the other day and this could be wrong but something like that vj singh is like a like a two handicap left-handed no (laughs) yeah that's crazy if he could get that smooth swing on the left side which he probably could I could see it. Yeah. It's crazy. Tempo town. These guys are good. Yeah. All right. I think that's good for today. Good session. And uh, we'll chat next week. Yeah, man. We'll talk to you later. Later.